Hello and welcome to the RBC Broadview Campus Sermon Podcast. Our mission here is loving God, loving people and seeing lives change. At RBC, our heart is to build a Jesus-centered community to see lives changed in multiple languages and locations. We hope you enjoy this message from one of our weekend services. To find out more about us, please visit our website, rbc.org.au. Yeah, there we go. Good morning. You are very privileged. You are the first Baptist church in South Australia to see that video. It's brand new. And um, I was very pleased about it. Did you like that? It's a new thing. We've been asking for one of them for a long time, so it's really nice to get one that um, sort of explains what we do. It's really lovely to be back. I love coming to Broadie. It's lovely to see how things are changing and developing and growing, and um, I'm just really grateful for your partnership with us uh, at Baptist World Aid. So I want to... Um, step into your sermon series today, which is nice. Andrew's let me do that and let me, uh, giving me a topic that I think will, uh, will work well. Hopefully some slides will come up soon. We're going to talk about um, uh, God's kingdom being for those who are excluded. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience of uh, realising that there are in- included and excluded people. Uh, Vicky and I, last year, spent six weeks in Europe. Have we got some slides? There we go. We can go to the next one. Spent six weeks in Europe and we, um, this was our 30th wedding anniversary trip that got delayed for a few years because of that fluey thing. Remember that? We try not to talk about now. And so um, we, got, we got this time to go, yeah, we spent time in, in France and Italy and UK and uh, one of the things we did was uh, went, went to some galleries, uh, which was lovely. The last time we tried to do that, uh, in Paris, we were there in 2008 and we had our kids with us and they were like uh, 12 and 10 and 5 or something, no, 8 maybe. And um, uh, we went, we lined up and we got into the Louvre and we walked in there and our plan was to spend a number of hours wandering looking at all these artworks. So we got in there and we started walking and our kids went, stinks in here. Right, we're in for a really good day and we we got to see the Mona Lisa and we got to see the Venus de Milo and by that time the kids had had enough and we left and so this time we're going to make the most of it and so both together in Paris and then um, these photos that I've taken are here, it's the shots I took when uh, I had a morning to myself in London, I went to the National Gallery in London and um, we had this experience everywhere we went uh, in, in Europe, in, in galleries, was that I, I had this inbuilt idea that paintings and galleries are there to be looked at. Now, that's radical, I know, but what you can do is you can get really close to them and you can see the texture of the paint and you can see how it reflects the light and you can see the technique that the artists have used to make the, make the you know, they paint this way so it reflects the light in this way and all these amazing things, but it seems that there are other people in the gallery whose idea was um, they paid the same amount of money and what they wanted to do was rush from painting to painting to painting and take a photo of every single one. So that afterwards they could go home and flick through their phone and go, oh, look at all the pretty paintings we saw. And if you want to do that, there's a way of doing that. It's called Google. And every gallery has a website with all of their paintings, pictures, and it was getting really frustrating. There were people literally pushing us out of the way so they could try and get in front of us to... Um, to take a photo, and literally it was like, hold the 
phone up, click, and then run on to the next one. And I'm like, what are you doing? And I got really, really angry. And I found myself, uh, as, I, as they were being faster and faster, I got slower and slower. And what I used to do was I'd sort of make my way to the front of the queue to look at a painting like some of these, and I'd stand there like this. And I would make myself as tall as I could and take up as much space as I could. And then I would stand there for two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, just looking at the painting. And literally, I could see there were cameras coming over my shoulder to take photos here, and, and, people, and, and people trying to get in front of me. And I did, every time, I just got slower and bigger. And um, I had a great time knowing that I was right and they were wrong. <laughs> and I, I was thinking to myself, you know, you can do it your way and I'll do it God's way and everything will be fine. And so I had a great morning in the National Gallery seeing Monet's and, and Da Vinci's and all sorts of other paintings that I'd seen for the, for the first time in real life. And it was stunning and it was beautiful, but um, those other people who didn't know the rules really, really annoyed me. You ever have those moments where people who don't know the rules annoy you? You know, you know the ones I mean. You know, we all do it, right? It's this human thing. We have our own set of rules and we don't even know that they're there until someone actually does something that crosses one of those boundaries and then we got a bit... It, we, we have this human tendency all the time to create insiders and outsiders. Don't we? Those who, those who know the rules and those who don't know the rules. I, I, you know, I remember growing up in church that it seemed very clear to me that um, there were insiders and outsiders. And if, if the outsiders ever wanted to know anything about God, it was really simple. They could come along, they could become like us, they could follow our rules that they didn't even know existed, and then we would accept them. They could be like us then. You, I know you guys aren't like that and you've never experienced that, but it, in some places it does happen. Insiders and outsiders. The, the whole... The whole story of the history of Israel is this idea that uh, there are insiders and outsiders. And they used to get in trouble with God all the time about it because what they, what they failed to understand was although they were chosen by God to reflect his glory, to what they were chosen actually, to, to demonstrate to the world what God was like. When people were to look at Israel, they were supposed to go, that's what God's like. I want to know about that. I want to understand who that God is. I want to become like God. I want to have a relationship with God because of what I see demonstrated in this, this group of people who are, who are loving and caring, where, where everyone is treated equally, where there's this, this uh, picture of what human flourishing could look like. And Israel went, not only are we chosen, but they mixed that up. And they've, they've, they've got confused between the word chosen and the word special. Do you know what I mean? It became not just God has chosen us to display his glory to the world, but God's picked us and we're pretty special because of that. In fact, you know, we've got this special thing going on with God and you don't. And if you want to know about God, then you actually really have to be like us. Anyone here a Dr. Seuss fan? Anyone into Dr. Seuss? He's got a series of books called Dr. Seuss Fables for the Slightly More Able. They're for, like, for older adults. Have you ever read them? Um, 
there's, there's a number of them. My favourite of all time is a, a story called I Had Trouble in Getting to Solosalu. Has anyone heard that? Go and find it, it's brilliant. But, but what I want to talk about today is, is a story called The Sneetches. Does anyone know the Dr Seuss story, The Sneetches? You know that story? It's about these, these... I was going to bring the book and read it to you, but then I thought, then we're going to get totally distracted. But um, it basically, basically, the outline of the story is it says these creatures called Sneetches who live on beaches... You can see it's Dr. Seuss already, right? And um, uh, there, there are two types of sneeches. There are the star-bellied sneeches who have bellies with stars and the plain-bellied speeches who have none upon bars. And, and so there's, there's this competition going on. That the, the, the sneeches with the stars on their bellies were like the most popular ones. They all had the Frankfurter parties, whatever they were, on the beach. And, and the ones without the stars were excluded. And they were pretty upset about that and they, they wanted to be part of the in-group but they couldn't be and, and the in-group would also then let them know that they couldn't be and we're the best kinds of sneech on the beach and they would do this whole interplay. And then this guy comes along who in true Dr Seuss fashion, his name is Sylvester McMonkey McBean and he comes along with his uh, amazing uh, star on machine. And what he says to the the sneeches without the stars is, if you pay me a bit of money, I can put you through this machine and you'll get a star on your belly and you can be just like them. And of course, sneeches are stupid and so they pay the money and they get the stars put on and they, they, they um, go up to the other sneeches and go, ha ha, look, we're just like you now. We're all the same, you can't exclude us anymore. And the, and the sneeches that had the stars on originally, they got really upset saying, how can this be? We are better than those sneeches. We have to find some way to differentiate ourselves. And Sylvester McMonkey McBean says, well, I've got another machine. And if you pay me some money, more money than the first guy, if you pay me some money, because sneeches aren't very smart, I can run you through the machine take the stars off. And they go, all right, we'll do that. So, uh, so they go through the machine, get the stars off, and then they go back and say, ah, we don't have stars anymore. We're better than you. Cause it's actually better now not to have stars. We've moved on from that whole star thing. And, and then the other guy says, well, we want our stars off. And there's this great picture in, in the book of um, two machines set up on the beach and Sneetches sort of going into one, out of it, into the other, out in this figure eight. And they're just doing it. And all the time they're just handing over cash. And the book finishes with um, Sylvester McMonkey McBean, packs up all his machines, he's got this big cart loaded with piles of money and he's travelling off up the beach. And uh, he, he says, you know, Sneetches never learn. And the last page is, well, they did learn. And they realised that it didn't matter whether you had a, a star or not. That we're all sneeches. And we could all just actually get on. You know, it's one of those Dr Seuss moral things. But it's this fascinating insight into insiders and outsiders and how we create those rules and then how we change the rules when we want to be special. And that sort of is the context for... The stuff we want to look at today, where Jesus turns up in, in uh, the start of uh, the start of his ministry in Luke chapter four, he he turns up uh, and he makes this kingdom announcement: "The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor." Today, as you listen. This scripture has been fulfilled. He says, this is what the kingdom looks like. There's this justice, there's this equality. Those who, are, those who are sick get healed. Those who are captives get set free. 
Those, those who are on the margins are no longer on the margins anymore. This is how God intends his world to be. This is how God intends his world to flourish. And then Jesus says this crazy thing. He said, it's not even just some dream for the future. He says, today, those of you who are listening to this are experiencing it. This kingdom is here. It's tangible. Mark says, you know, the kingdom of God is at hand. You can reach out and touch it. It's, it's within your grasp. And then over the next few chapters of Luke, Luke really clearly goes through and just demonstrates Jesus showing us what this looks like. Which brings us actually to the passage we want to look at today, which is Luke chapter 7. Just one story that is actually really familiar, I think. Uh, Luke seven thirty six. One of the Pharisees invited him to eat with him. He entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And a woman in the town who was a sinner found out that Jesus was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house. She brought an alabaster jar of perfume and stood behind him at his feet, weeping and began to wash his feet. You understand, behind him at his feet, they'd sit at the table and have their feet pointed away from the table because their feet were disgusting and smelly. And So she was sort of at his feet. She wiped his feet with her hair, kissing them and anointing them with the perfume. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, this man, if he were a prophet, would know who and what kind of woman this is who's touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus replied to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He said, say it, teacher. A creditor had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Since they could not pay it back, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I, I suppose the one he forgave more. You have judged correctly, he told him. Turning to the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Not, you know, do you see this woman, but do you see her? Do you notice her? Do you see who she is? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she with her tears has washed my feet and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she hasn't stopped kissing my feet since I came in. You didn't anoint my head with olive oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven. That's why she loved much. But the one who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. It's really interesting story and there's so much culturally going on that we really don't have a whole heap of time to unpack this morning but this idea that this pharisee who who's bringing jesus to his house to probably check out whether jesus is the real deal or not right he really wants to spend some time with him to understand and one of the ways that he has in his head that jesus would know that he would know if jesus is the real deal is how jesus treated this woman that has come in now he she didn't come into his dining room and sit at his feet like uh, meal spaces in those houses were often open public spaces, so it was easy for people to come in and out. So it wasn't like she'd broken into his house or anything. This woman had come. And as soon as, he, as, soon as this guy, this Pharisee, sees this woman touching Jesus and him allowing her to touch him, he's made up his mind. If, if he were a prophet, he would know who she is. But he doesn't know who she is. So obviously, he's not a prophet. He's an outsider, just as I thought he was. Prove my point. I was a bit sceptical, now I know. But 
there's this thing that goes on with a woman that is fascinating and um, it really um, has come into perspective for me in the last year or so, uh, which I, I sort of knew and I knew the theory but I've experienced it this, in the last year, is this woman comes and brings this alabaster jar, this alabaster box perhaps, depending on what translation you read. And uh, you may know this, but this box is her dowry. Now, dowry is a really interesting thing in Jesus' day. When a girl came of age, 12 or 13, she was given this box, this dowry, which was going to be her gift to her husband when she gets married. It's like you know, her, only, her only possession in the world, in a, in a, in a culture where women were, were, were oppressed, in a culture where women weren't allowed to express themselves, where a culture where women were just possessions of the men. This was her one thing. So to even give that to Jesus says something, right? This is, this is all the wealth I have in the world. This is the only thing I have in the world and I'm breaking it at your feet and giving it to you. I'm not giving it to a husband. I'm giving it to you. You mean everything to me. I'm committing my life to you. And that's a costly thing. That probably would have cost her the ability to get married probably would have cost her the ability to function in society because she'd given this dowry to Jesus. It's really significant and important. It was, it was a statement that's more than just breaking a bit of, you know, washing Jesus' feet and using a bit of her perfume to make his feet smile. This is a, a symbol of total devotion to him. And very, very, very countercultural to do that would be seen as wasting it. In another story, uh, in, in the Gospels we hear, you know, the disciples getting really upset that a woman would waste so much stuff on Jesus. We could have sold that and given the money to the poor. One of the other things I got to do last year was to travel to Nepal. Um, it says, anyone ever been to Nepal? Oh, good, I can tell all the stories. It is an amazing country. It was my first time there. And... Um, uh, we, we travelled around visiting some projects that Baptist World Aid are supporting with our, with our local Christian partners over there. And um, one, of the, one of the groups we met, we met with this women's group. I'll just show you this photo. Um, we met with this lady. There's a group of 18 women. Uh, and they were uh, what, um, what our partner, what they call a self-reliance group. So there were women in the community who get together to work on the issues that, that they identify in their community and this woman came and sat in the middle of a circle to tell us her story and um, her story is this women because of their gender in Nepal are excluded and there's all sorts of cultural ways that, that happens and one of those is the dowry system let me explain to you how it works in Nepal it's a little bit different in, different in every culture but in Nepal this, in, in this region this is how it works. When your daughter marries someone, your family has to pay the husband a certain amount of money. We heard of one story where the dowry that a family had to pay to their daughter's husband was 100,000 US dollars in Nepal. And the way that they calculate that number depends on all sorts of things. If the husband uh, is, has finished high school, then he's worth a certain amount of money. 
If he's finished university, then it's even more. If the daughter has certain levels of education or knowledge or skills, then it's more as well. And so one of the ways for poor families to um, reduce the amount of dowry they have to pay, and understand the, way, the only way they can pay it generally is they might have a small patch of land that they farm for the, to get vegetables and food for their family. The way, they, um, the way they pay the dowry is they sell off a bit of that land. So you might have five kids. And each time, if you've got daughters, each time a daughter marries, you have to sell off a bit more of the land, which of course gives you less land to produce food for your family, which actually puts you more into poverty. Do you understand that? Uh, we, we met one family. There's, there's a saying in Nepal, uh, you have two eyes and you need two sons. Uh, we met a family, uh, not this lady, but a lady in this group who had ten children. First child was a son and then nine daughters. They were trying for their second son because culturally it's appropriate. Nine lots of dowry. So the way you keep the dowry bill down is a number of things. One is um, you don't ever let your daughter get her citizenship papers. Because if you do that, she might leave. And then you'll get nothing for her. And like you need to make sure that you know, she's, if, if she's smart and intelligent, it'll cost a whole lot more. So you need to make sure she stays stupid. So you don't send her to school. You don't give her an education. And the best thing you can do, even though the legal age for marriage in Nepal is 20, marry her off as young as you possibly can. If you can marry her off when she's 12 or 13, then it costs less. And you can save a bit more land for your family. And so this dowry system creates this cycle of poverty. Can you see how it does that? We'll keep our, we'll keep our daughters um, uneducated. We'll keep our daughters... Uh, <laughs> we chatted to this group, and one of the things, none of these women, these women at all just got their citizenship papers, which some of them didn't even know they could get. Some of them had disabled children, and the government actually offers a, like a welfare payment for disabled children, but to get it, you actually have to have government papers and to get government papers, you actually have to be able to sign your name. And these women didn't know how to sign their name. And one of the first things they learned to do was to sign their name. And someone who was with us said to them, how many of you can sign your name now? And all 18 of them put up their hand, had these big smiles on their face, and were just cheering. I mean, signing your name. Oh, we teach our kids how old. I remember my son when he was maybe three. He wasn't very old. Uh, we were living, we were living in a, we were renting a house and it had a big sandstone fireplace. And I walked into the lounge room one day and written across the whole sandstone fireplace in uh, lead pencil was Thomas. And I said to him, who did that? And he looked at his sister who was about one at the time and said, oh, I think Rebecca did it. I said, oh, Really? Rebecca wrote Thomas. He went, oh, no, it was me. I go, really? Your kids learning to write their names simple, right? We do it all the time. For these women to be able to sign their name changed their lives. And they identified this dowry system as one of the things that was actually stopping their community from going ahead. One of the reasons we work with women at Baptist World Aid uh, the, the United Nations figures say if you lift women out of poverty, 
you can increase a country's GDP by 72%. 72%. It's almost doubling the GDP of a country by working with women. That's why women are a key part of our strategic plan. doesn't mean we don't do things with men, but we focus on this stuff because these women say to us, the thing that is holding our community back is this dowry system. And so as they learnt about it, as they learnt about their rights, as they learnt about options, they decided that they were going to change this. So in a culture where this is fundamental to how the culture exists and how, how money changes hands and all this sort of stuff in the culture, this woman, and a number of others, but this woman in particular, says, I refuse to take dowry when my sons got married. And I refused to pay dowry when my daughters got married. That is so countercultural. And they realised it was going to cost them. They said, We are going to do this, and we are going to wear the pain and the cost of that in our culture so that our daughters have a chance to be different. It's an amazing story. People who are excluded because of gender are now at the very heart of what's changing in their community. They are reshaping this whole community. And they are willing to deal with the cost of it. And there is a cost to it. To see a different life for their kids. We want our daughters to go to school. We want them to get an education. We, don't, we choose not to marry them off when they're 12 or 13 or 14. We'll even let them choose who they're going to marry. Totally different mindset. Why? Because when they understand that they're valued, when they understand that they're equal, when, they're un when they understand they don't have to be outsiders, they can be insiders they will change their whole community, and they do. These women are doing it. We met numerous groups. Our partners are doing this in all over Nepal and Cambodia and, and um, Bangladesh and every other country we work in. This is the work that we do. Seeing those who are excluded be included. What about us? Hands up if you're Jewish. No one. Guess what? You're all outsiders. If we, if, we, if we go by these rules, that just the fact that we are here today and we are in relationship with Jesus means that we are outsiders who have become insiders. We've been chosen. But the warning for us is the same. In our chosenness, we better be careful not to think that we're special. Special, you know what I mean, right? That sort of special. In the book of James, he writes this, Brothers and sisters, don't show favouritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favour on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, God did choose, God didn't, didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonoured the poor. That lady in Nepal, one of the other stories she told us was when she, um, until just, that group had only been going maybe a year, but 
until she started in that group. When she, uh, when she would go into a room that there were men in the room, even if there were chairs to sit on, she would feel like she had to sit on the floor. She said, I don't do that anymore. I sit on the chair now. Women are taking their place. This is the work that when you support Baptist World Aid, this is what you're doing. But we are now the insiders. And it's really easy for us to move from being an outsider to an insider and forget where we once were. To forget what that looked like. And the challenge for us, even today, even in our local communities here in Australia, regardless of the stuff they're having overseas, right here, how are we embracing the outsider? Do we think we're special? Maybe not even consciously, but subconsciously? Are we creating barriers for people? Are we excluding people? The kingdom is for the outsider. Probably even more than the insider. That was what Jesus got really upset about with this Pharisee. Simon, you should have known better. If you say you know God, you should <laughs> you've been forgiven much too. But you've just missed the point somehow. So that's our challenge today. How are we welcoming the excluded? How are we creating space for those who are different? Because that's the gospel message. Those who are on the outside are now chosen to be on the inside. The challenge for us is to think about that in our own community and think about those around the world who are excluded as well. How do we create the space for all of them to come to know Jesus? What are the conscious or subconscious barriers we have up? What's the next step for us? Maybe that's a question for you and God. Huh? Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you have brought us those who are excluded, those who are on the margins, those who were outside of your kingdom, you've chosen us and you've brought us in. Lord, may we hold on to that amazing gift of grace. We totally didn't deserve it, Lord, and you still loved us. And Lord, may we, in our own community, learn to express that grace to others. Lord, show us if there's barriers that we're putting up. Show us if we are creating insiders and outsiders in our, in our language, in our words, in our actions. Help us to welcome the excluded, Lord. And Lord, as we think about it here in our own culture, Lord, we think about all those places around the world where people are excluded because of gender or because of disability or <laughs> because of uh, just being born into the wrong family. And Lord, help us to stand with them and with you and work for justice in those spaces as well. Holy Spirit, would you stir us up today? Would you speak to us? Would you challenge us? Would you help us to respond generously in our time and our actions and our, with our words and with our finances? Thank you, Lord. Forgive us for when we exclude others. Restore us again, we pray. Let your kingdom come, 
let your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.